0: And why don't we pray together. Heavenly Father, we so underestimate the importance of the resurrection. Our Father, help us today to grasp it with a fresh light, and may it help us in our task of taking that gospel message to the world. Through the name of your dear Son, who died for us, but was also raised to life. Amen. It was a day when the world uh, changed forever. It helps. Um, on September 11, 2001, 19 hijackers took control of four commercial passenger jets flying out of airports on the east coast of the US. Uh, two of the aircraft were deliberately flown uh, into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York. The third hit the Pentagon. Uh, The fourth one uh, crashed in Pennsylvania. didn't hit its intended target, best we can tell. Uh, Both of the 110 floor trade centres in New York, the two towers, they subsequently collapsed. Damage was caused one way in the Pentagon. Numerous other buildings in uh, Lower Manhattan were also damaged. The loss of life on September 11 was more than 3,000 people, including the 19 hijackers. It was the worst loss of life due to terrorism on U.S. soil. The days that followed saw a significant effect on world economic markets and also on international confidence. And here we are, 17 years on, and not just the U.S., but the world still feels the effects of September 11 things such as heightened airport security, Islamic extremism and armed conflict and even haunting memories. As an event it was watched by billions on their TV screens across the globe. It was a day when the world changed forever. Uh, 2,000 years before the September 11 attacks. Uh, There was another day when the world changed forever, it's just that the world didn't realize it at the time. It was a day, it was was preached on last week, where God's own son was killed on a cross. A witness not by billions of people, but just by a few. You see Mark 15 verse 40, Verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph and Salome. Uh, as we saw last week, in this same event, the, the curtain of the temple was ripped into that, that curtain which symbolically separated God and people. It was not just that the, the door to heaven was slightly opened, a jar It was kicked open in the death of Jesus so that once again humanity could relate to God like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden as they walked with God in the cool of the day. That was the, the impact of the crucifixion. That was the impact of the death of Jesus or at least the potential impact. For the death of Jesus, as important as it is to us as Christians, as, as central to the Christian faith is of actually of no real value apart uh, from the resurrection. In fact, if there was no resurrection, then the death of Jesus would be of no value to us today at all. If that was the end of the story, there'd be nothing in it for us. The death of Jesus would be useless. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep, that is those who have died, have just perished. Without the resurrection of Jesus, the cross is in fact not good news. Our faith is futile. Our hope for the future is dashed. And as I was talking to my son Matthew this morning in the car, I said to him, look, what do you think are some of the key things that Christians believe? And he said, oh, well, that God exists. Uh, and that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Uh, correct, correct. Uh, and that's pretty much how I answer too. But I know for myself, even as he was talking before about evangelism, in my own evangelism, mentioning, sure, I focus on the death of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus has no real place. It's more just as an afterthought, really. That's one of those things that happened. But the real action was on the cross. Now, that's certainly not the Bible's perspective. In fact, it says the cross and the resurrection, they go together. Uh, We'll certainly see in the Apostles' teaching. In fact, their focus is more in the book of Acts on the resurrection, actually, than on the cross of Christ itself. Without the resurrection, our own hope for the future are dashed. Just as those who witnessed Jesus' crucifixion, their hopes on that first Good Friday were dashed as well. From those couple of women watching on and the disciples who had fled, uh, from their perspective, this Easter Friday, the, the death of Jesus, wasn't so much a day that changed the world, It was a day that changed their world uh, for the worst. All they had was a dear friend and teacher who was now dead. The only thing that was left for them to do as friends was to bury him. But how could they do that? Verse 42, Mark 15, please read with me, verse 42. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath with evening approaching. See, Mark writes in exact detail here about uh, what's actually taking place here. He says it's Passover time, so the major public holiday time of the year You sort of think that Christmas to New Year break for us. It's also Friday and the weekly Sabbath was about to begin at sundown, just in a few hours' time. And no one's allowed to do any work, including burying a body then, so they've got to get it done beforehand. Think of, you know, that mid-afternoon on Christmas Eve, you know, the shops are about to shut. They've got to get everything done. And so the timing even of Jesus' death, just before the Sabbath, coming out to a major public holiday event, even the timing causes pressure and we're meant to feel that pressure for jesus to be buried something has to be done and be done quickly or he'd be left on the cross literally for the birds to pick at which was often what happened for people who were crucified Now, normally it would be family members who would request for the body to be released so the family would bury them but no mention of family is here Uh, maybe jesus family were too distraught Maybe they were too scared. Maybe they just weren't around. They're just not mentioned. And so you think, well, Jesus' followers, his disciples would be the next cab off the rank, those closest to him to bury him out of respect. But there's been no mention of them. In fact, really, from the moment Jesus was arrested and the disciples fled the night before, there's been no mention of the disciples or hardly any at all other than Peter really who denied Jesus and John who was there but the others are not there it's sort of reading through even Mark 15 this week which um, you looked at with Wes last Sunday to me it felt like reading a Wes Wally book now when the kids were younger I think we probably still got a couple of home you know we've got those Wes Wally books you've seen those that sort of Books where there's a picture and there's lots of detail, but hidden in the detail of all the people, there's this guy called Wally, and there's a few other people thrown in as well. There's a, a dog whose tail you can see called Woof and O'Dlaw, and so you scan this picture and desperately trying to find Wally. He's there somewhere. As I was reading Mark 15, I was desperately scanning, looking to find the disciples, but at least in the Where's Wally book, Wally's there somewhere. But here the disciples are completely absent. The only ones there are the three women, as was read to us. Two called Mary and one called Salome. And they're fairly powerless to do anything about Jesus being buried at all. I mean, what this situation required was was a person, was an influential person at that to pull strings if Jesus was to have any hope of getting something that resembled an honourable burial. And so a man, an influential man, steps in and pulls strings, but he's he's almost the last person that you'd expect to be asking for the body of Jesus. Uh, For this guy, we're told his name is Joseph, is actually a member of the group who actually plotted Jesus' crucifixion. You see there at the end of verse 42 of Mark 15, as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, that's the group who condemned Jesus to death, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. I mean, this is the first and only mention of this guy Joseph in the book of Mark. And if we read Matthew and Luke and John, we find out a little bit more about him. We read that he was a rich man, that he was part of this sort of Jewish council of people who condemned Jesus to death. But Joseph was one of the ones who actually disagreed, who said that Jesus shouldn't be condemned to death. And we also read that he's a secret believer of Jesus. But not only was he a member of this council, we told him that he was a prominent member. He was a senior person, certainly senior enough to be able to go to Pilate and get the body of Jesus released into his care. Now, up to this point, Joseph had been kept his allegiance to Jesus fairly quiet. He, he feared the reaction of his colleagues. But in verse 43 here, we see that timid Joseph becomes courageous Joseph as he goes boldly to Pilate, asking if he could bury the body of Jesus and thus practically outing himself as a disciple. Now, Mark is at pains to point out here something which is absolutely crucial. That is that Jesus really died. There's just so many references to Jesus being dead. For example, in verse uh, 43, it's mentioned that Jesus was already dead. Verse 44, that he's already died. In that same verse, verse 44, the centurion confirms that Jesus died. And the fact that Pilate released the body of Jesus to Joseph confirmed that Jesus was dead. Yeah, there are some people who actually want to say that Jesus didn't actually really die because dead people don't come back to life. He was just injured, and when he was put in the tomb, he sort of revived. And Mark is at pains here to say that Jesus was actually dead. Even if you want to deny the reality of the resurrection, the reality of Jesus' death is actually unquestioned. Now, the removal of Jesus' body and the, the purchase of linen cloth and the burial itself or actions of Joseph. As a prominent member, he rich person probably had servants who could do a lot of the work. These things had to be purchased and the body quickly wrapped and buried. Uh, John's gospel, in fact, something I didn't realize until this week, tells us that Nicodemus was also there and that Nicodemus bought uh, 75 pounds worth, about 35 kilos of spices or myrrh and aloes to put on the body of Jesus. And just a couple of days ago I was actually thinking we were going to have heavy storms uh, by Friday, so I went and bought a 25 kilo bag of fertiliser and struggled carrying that out to the car. You know. This is about half as heavy again That's a lot of uh, myrrh and aloes to put on the body of Jesus. We read in verse 46, Joseph took some linen cloth, took down the body, that is from the cross, wrapped it in linen, placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. He rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. And so really with these last rites observed from a distance by at least two of the women who were with Jesus' crucifixion, pretty much humanly speaking to them, that seemed the end of the matter. Jesus is dead, he's now buried. Three years of public ministry, three years of hope, all gone. That's how chapter 15 finishes. And by the time we get to the next verse, chapter 16, verse 1, uh, 36 hours or thereabouts have passed. And what we find in these verses is a, a fascinating description of the range of emotions that these uh, women who, who go to the tomb uh, go through as they are confronted with the reality of Jesus' resurrection. For in such a short space of time, they go from being sorrowful in verses 1 and 2 to, to worried in verse 3, to confused in verse 4, to alarmed in verses 5, 6 and 7, including in verse 8, were being absolutely terrified. At first, they were, were sorrowful, we told Two days earlier, these women had just witnessed their Lord and Master being cruelly murdered on the cross. They'd seen him taken away and put in a tomb before they themselves even got a chance uh, to prepare his body for burial. They probably felt their whole life had fallen apart that it was hardly worth going on and yet they were still on this Easter morning wanting to do what they could. You read verse 1, Mark 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on, the first day of the week, after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. They obviously didn't know that Nicodemus had turned up with 35 kilos worth of spices to put on the body of Jesus. They're taking what they could. I'm assuming that they didn't know that in fact, as we know from Matthew's Gospel, that some soldiers had been placed at the tomb, that it was guarded. It wasn't going to be a simple case, even if they could move the stone, of getting to it anyway. They know none of that. They just go out of loyalty to try and do what they can. They are sorrowful, but as they went, they also felt worried because as they approached the tomb, the women faced a problem that they were unable to fix. They say to one another in verse 3, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? They knew they had as much chance themselves of pushing that big heavy stone away, as you and I would have, pushing a loaded semi-trailer up Mount Kutha. It's interesting, too, that they say, who will move the stone? They don't think of asking the disciples. Again, the disciples are missing in action. They're not even on the Where's Wally page. And yet they are worried about who will move the stone and how they could possibly... Put the spices they had bought onto the body of Jesus would have turned to confusion, I imagine, as we read their discovery in verse 4. It says, When they arrived, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. I mean, this was something they couldn't imagine, it was completely unexpected. Their initial problem of getting into the tomb was solved but it created even bigger questions. How did this happen? Who moved the stone? Has Jesus' body been touched or defaced or something happened to it? Uh, One Saturday night uh, in the veterinary clinic um, when I worked when I was in Sydney, uh, the door was found wide open. What had happened, we closed the clinic at 1pm that day and about 10pm that night Uh, my boss got a phone call from the police who happened to be wandering past and noticed the door wide open. My boss and I, we sort of rushed down there, Uh, nothing had been disturbed that we could tell. nothing touched, nothing stolen. We contacted the other staff, no one had been there. Uh, We actually didn't know how the door opened. To this day I still don't know how the door was opened or what was going on. I mean locked doors don't magically open. Tombs with great big stones over them don't magically open, and so imagine how confused these women must have felt, of finding a tomb they expected shut wide open. And Mark leaves us dangling as to the identity of the person who actually moved the stone at this point. The the women's uh, confusion still uh, quickly gave way, though, in verse 5 to alarm, for they charge inside the tomb, expecting to trip over a dead body, but instead they trip over an angel. The angel is dressed, we're told, in a radiant robe, just like Jesus had been at his transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. Uh, the women had stumbled upon this heavenly being and are understandably alarmed. A point picked up by the angel who tells them in verse 6, don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus and Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. In fact, more literally it says, he has been raised. That is, Jesus didn't raise himself. He was raised by someone else. And in fact, his Heavenly Father. Looking for Jesus a Nazarene who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. See the place where they've laid him. I mean, a stark contrast the angel paints. The women had come looking for the body of Jesus, a Nazarene who'd been crucified. They'd come looking for a dead body, but instead are confronted by an alive one. Uh, these women had already experienced two days before a day that had changed not just their world but the world in the cross of Jesus. But here two days later I now experience a second day that changed the world. And while the, the earth shattering implications of the crucifixion of Jesus may not have dawned on them at the time, some of the implications of the, the resurrection dawned on them very quickly. And being confronted by a heavenly messenger announcing a resurrected saviour leaves them absolutely terrified. They flee the the tomb in complete panic. They just had to get out. They are just so fearful. They said nothing to no one. I don't know if you've ever been literally terrified. Uh, remember I remember when uh, my uh, children had to get their was um, out when they were young, only a couple of years old, um, three-year-old, and just going to the recovery room. Uh, and, my, and my son was there, and as soon as he saw me, he just burst into tears, absolutely panicked. He's surrounded by nurses and hospital and things, and suddenly he sees someone who's safe just seeing the look on his face of terror of what had happened. These women are confronted with something they just cannot explain. Body's gone. Angel is there, says this story that he's come back to life. No wonder the women said nothing to Noah. And the Gospel of Mark bizarrely ends, it abruptly ends, it In verse 8, which is why most commentators or most commentaries believe that a few hundred years later, uh, a Christian scribe just didn't like the way that the book of Mark ended. It was almost embarrassing that followers of Jesus wouldn't tell anyone anything, they just ran away. And so they added in verses 9 to 20, sort of from some stuff that they knew about the disciples and Jesus and just to give a bit of a better ending, just to patch it up a bit. <laughs> Why has Mark ended this way? Why is he ended in verse 8? And did the, the doorbell ring and he never got back to it? And did he run out of ink? Uh, run out of ideas what to say? Why does Mark end with women fleeing the tomb, saying nothing uh, to no one? Why well, I you think that Mark ended this way quite deliberately. By ending with the women's sort of unexpected stony silence to Jesus' bodily resurrection, he forces everyone who hears or reads these words to consider their own response to Jesus' resurrection. Will we respond the same way as these women, saying nothing to no one, or will we respond differently? You see, Resurrection Sunday was certainly a day that changed the world of these women who were the first witnesses um, to the resurrection. It was a day that changed um, the world of these loyal followers of Jesus. It was also a day that changed the world of the disloyal followers of Jesus as well, his own disciples, the ones who had been absent this whole time who are deliberately mentioned in verse 7. Uh, Verse 7, the angel says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he he told you. See, what the angel is saying here is that Jesus has forgiven and also restored the disciples, who we read within weeks, are fearlessly proclaiming that not only has Jesus died, but that he is risen again to life. And so it's a great reminder here that the Christian God is the God of second chances. He doesn't write us off. He welcomes wayward sinners back to himself. Those those who have been wayward for the first time or for the umpteenth time. You see, the resurrection of Jesus isn't just something that's impacted the past, it impacts the present and the future. The resurrection of Jesus didn't just change the world of those uh, first witnesses. It didn't just change their world. The resurrection of Jesus has changed our world as well. Uh, Let me explain. Um, five weeks after this first Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, was the day of Pentecost. As recorded in Acts chapter 2, one of Jesus' disciples, mean Peter, has been radically changed. I mean, He's been forgiven, he's been restored, he's received the Holy Spirit, and he's gone from disowning Jesus to proclaiming him, all in five weeks. And he gets up and preaches a sermon the first recorded Christian sermon. And the big point of his sermon to the thousands of Jewish people listening on is that the resurrection uh, of the crucified Jesus really happened and that it makes a, a big deal, it makes a big difference to people's lives and what it means for them. So it says in Acts chapter 2, he says, God raised this Jesus to life, the one that you crucified." And we are all witnesses of the fact. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Jesus' resurrection has made him Lord and Christ. It has made him uh, Saviour, but also King. And therefore, judge over everything and everyone. All of us are going to have to stand before God one day and give an account of our lives. And that's a frightening prospect, a terrifying prospect, if you are not a follower of Jesus. Uh, The crowd listening in to Peter's message realized this immediately and cry out, what should we do then? And Peter's response is that they should repent and receive forgiveness for their sins. They need to, to stop rejecting King Jesus. They need to stop living as if Jesus doesn't really matter to their lives and turn towards him and humbly ask him for forgiveness and start living his way. And friends, if you are not a follower of Jesus here this morning, that is exactly what you need to do. Confronted by a crucified and risen Saviour who is judge of the world, the one before whom all of us will have to give an account. To keep rejecting him, to keep saying, Jesus, you stay in your corner and I'll stay in my corner. I keep just having the good life, not living with him as ruler and king. means that you stand under eternal judgment. And the God of second chances is the one who will actually welcome you back like the prodigal son if you turn to him in repentance. He welcomes you back and you can actually do that today. Today is a great day to do that if you're not a follower of Jesus. But friends, if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, The resurrection of Jesus throws up another challenge. I mean, how are you going to respond to the resurrection? Will you be like the women in Acts 16 who, sorry, in Mark 16, who, though loyal to Jesus, say nothing to no one? Will you be like the Apostle Peter and proclaim the resurrected Jesus to people who are hostile and indifferent to the message? Will you invite that friend next Sunday to come to church? Will you stick your neck out at work or with your family? So people actually have the opportunity to hear the difference that Jesus makes. Will you be prepared to have that uncomfortable conversation that's something you've known for a long time? Will you be prepared just to share about the difference that Jesus made? Will you let someone know you're a Christian (laughs) As a start, will you say nothing to nobody or will you actively proclaim the resurrected Jesus? Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, it's easy to be critical of these women, but at least they were there, loyally seeking to do what they could for Jesus. Father, thank you that you're a God who welcomes people back who's willing to restore people such as the disciples, such as anyone who repents, who turns back to you and asks for forgiveness. Father, may we do that today. And Father, may we be the people who continue the legacy that these women began. May we not stay silent, but may we be prepared to talk about Jesus to others the sake, of the growth of the kingdom of God.